Welcome to Pain Week. How many of you guys, uh, this is your first uh, or second year at Pain Week? Raise hands. Great. Oh, it's so great to see that. Well, um, for those of you who haven't seen uh, Kevin Zakharoff speak, you're in for a big treat today. He's a, a great friend of Pain Week, longtime faculty member, um, and not to bias your reviews, but he gets rave reviews every year here. So, um, and, and what a great session uh, for a, 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 the first morning here at Pain Week. Um, Kevin is with us. Uh, again, he's been with us many years, and uh, he's from the SUNY Storybrooke School of Medicine uh, with the Department of Preventative Medicine. He's a practicing anesthesiologist. But um, very important to this session, in addition to the fact that he's a great speaker, is that recently, um, and you, this is not in your books, Kevin was just appointed to FDA's Advisory Committee for Analgesics. So again, um, a, a great tie-in with this session. Um, just a quick highlighting note, um, I'm Stephen Lewis with Global Education Group. We're the accreditation and certification provider. If you have any CME questions or related, um, the CME desk is on this floor right across from the registration. So we're happy to answer any of the questions you have about the, uh, uh, credits, the app, and things like that. Um, in addition, if you're looking for APA, psychology credit, there is a sign-in sheet in the back of every room that you'll attend. Um, so you need to sign in in order to prove your APA credit. Um, otherwise, you'll be getting notified electronically about your CME credits. You'll be able to um, get your certificates electronically at the end of the uh, conference. And so, uh, but again, any questions like that, please feel free to let us know. But again, um, you're in for a big treat. Let's give a warm round of applause to Kevin Zakharoff. Thanks, Steve. Uh, and it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I have been a big supporter of this meeting. I've actually been at every single pain week. So uh, I've got a lot of the routine down pat. Uh, I'm happy that I wasn't speaking early this morning, so they threw me a bone. And uh, as Steve mentioned, uh, one of the things I think that I could tie in very nicely to this talk is the fact that I was just appointed to the uh, anesthetic and analgesic advisory committee to the Food and Drug Administration. So uh, I can give you some first-hand perspectives. Uh, I have nothing to disclose uh, with respect to financial conflict. And uh, I think our objectives are uh, become evidently clear. Uh, what I am going to try and do this morning for you uh, is connect some of the dots for you uh, to regulatory agencies that are involved in your daily practice of healthcare in any way, shape, or form. Uh, the, the things I'm gonna cover are no, in no way, shape, or form comprehensive, but when I took a deep dive and wanted to look and see what would be pertinent for people who are true frontline practitioners, uh, these are the, the regulatory agencies that came top of mind. So what is a regulatory agency? Well, a regulatory agency is a public authority uh, or government agency that's responsible for exercising some kind of autonomous, autonomous authority over areas of human activity. In my case, uh, being a physician, I not only have all the regulatory agencies uh, that I'm going to talk about today to contend with. Uh, I have my significant other, my wife, uh, and she is my super regulatory agency. Uh, as soon as I get home, she tells me what to do. <clears throat> now, when I think of regulatory agencies, 
I think in today's atmosphere, one of the things that pops right into my mind is regulatory scrutiny. And uh, it's impossible, certainly in 2017, to not talk about regulatory agencies in the context of prescription pain medications, most importantly, uh, opioid analgesics uh, that are prescribed for people who have pain. Uh, and when we think about the forces that are involved, with decisions that are made in treating patients with pain, especially when opioid analgesics are considered, the phrase I use is fear of regulatory scrutiny is one of the forces that's working at play. And I think any one of us needs to think about this regulatory scrutiny in the context of the practice of healthcare, in the context of writing prescriptions, uh, writing prescriptions for opioids, maybe the fear of regulatory scrutiny is pushing people towards not writing prescriptions for opioids. Uh, certainly, if you participate in the digestion of any form of media, I think it's fair to say that that's the atmosphere we're in today. Uh, most people talk about prescription pills and uh, too many of them being prescribed and Opioid epidemic, opioid crisis is something that I can find in some news piece pretty much every single day. When we think about regulatory agencies, it's a really crowded field. A lot of different groups and organizations have joined the field of becoming regulatory agencies that have or want to have a say in what we do when we're caring for patients with pain. So who does what? Well, we're all probably familiar with CMS, I'm sure. Uh, CMS oversees most of the regulations re related directly to our healthcare system, specifically Medicare, Medicaid, uh, SCHIP, and uh, CMS is also uh, responsible for HIPAA. Uh, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality uh, really focuses on conducting research, developing education, uh, generating measures and data, and really tries to focus on things that are involved with uh, improving safety and reducing costs. And any of us who work in an institutional setting are probably familiar with this organization and uh, are probably familiar with the terms of reducing cost, improving safety, and improving efficacy. That's a tough combination of things to try to achieve. Most of, not all of us, are familiar with the Joint Commission. Uh, they accredit almost 21,000 different healthcare organizations and institutions across the country. And uh, accreditation and certification by the Joint Commission is something that is, is widely recognized as a good housekeeping seal of approval. Uh, there, there is definitely going to be tie-in for all of these organizations I mentioned with respect to the, the management of chronic pain. And the Joint Commission particularly uh, is important to any of us who take care of patients in an institutional setting. The National Committee for Quality Assurance uh, focuses on a lot of the, the things that we think about with respect to patients, but more from a perspective of large employers, policymakers, healthcare providers, and most importantly, 
uh, health care plans, managed care organizations. This is not advancing. There we go. Not advancing. There we go. Uh, the Office of National Drug Control Policy uh, is an office of the government at the White House level, and they have been committed to reducing drug use and its consequences. And in addition to a number of steps that were taken originally back in 2011, uh, provides administrative and financial support to something called the President's Commission on Combating Addiction and the Opioid Crisis. The Environmental Protection Agency is an agency that's involved in things that we do. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I have the discussion with people in my community about what to do with an unused portion of prescription pain medication. My pharmacy has a big sign it's a Rite Aid in New York, uh, and it says, do not flush. They don't want you to flush. The Environmental Protection Agency does not want these medications getting into the water supply, but yet, if you look in whatever you use to get medication information, some of those guidelines will tell you to flush the medication. In a perfect world, Somebody will know where the medication can be taken to give back. Somebody will know to mix the medication in a Ziploc bag filled with water and kitty litter or coffee grounds and then put it in an unmarked bag and put it in the trash can. But the bottom line is I'm not sure everybody knows. And I actually think one of the problems is that we have, and if you've heard me speak before, uh, you've heard me say this before, we have been brought up as a society to save our pain medications. We get rid of the other stuff when we move to a different medication, but when we no longer need our opioid analgesics, we save them for a rainy day. And we save them from other members of our household, just in case. So now we're getting a little bit closer to, you know, the, the things that we're probably more aware of the, the Drug Enforcement Administration. And the, the DEA is really in charge of enforcing controlled, controlled substance laws and regulations uh, that pertain to both legally produced and illegally obtained medications. And the analogy I use for the Drug Enforcement Administration used to be that the DEA really has control of anyone who can write a prescription for a medication. The FDA really used to focus on medications, pharmaceutical companies, sponsors, and the approval of medications, but not so much with respect to how clinicians prescribe the medications. Those lines have gotten quite blurry. And the opioid crisis, the, the opioid epidemic has definitely brought these two agencies closer together. One organization that we don't probably think about a lot uh, is the Federation of State Medical Boards. And uh, I don't know if most of you think of the DEA as a punitive organization. Uh, I think of the DEA as an organization that basically gives me 
the license to write prescriptions. I think of the Federation of State Medical Boards, who are the ones who are in charge of licensing me at a state level and then disciplining me if I need discipline. The CDC has recently gotten involved in uh, the practice of pain and its management. Uh, their main goal is to protect public health and safety and typically would focus on infectious diseases. I think that's what most of us think about when we think about the CDC. Uh, but as we'll look at in, in a few minutes, um, the CDC has recently gotten involved in this story as well. The organization that I advise, the Food and Drug Administration, is responsible, is responsible for protecting the public health and the state of public health uh, and ensures the safety of our nation's food supply, cosmetics, and even products that emit radiation, but we all think of them in this story as the organization that looks at pain medications and approves them, removes them from the market, and now is involved with providing education to clinicians about how to prescribe prescription pain medications through REMS. So, so we just went through these agencies and, and the question is, so what? So these agencies exist. There are probably many more agencies that exist that I didn't talk about. What does this really mean? Well, what it really means is this. Not, a, not, not building, this is Ah, there we go. This is, this is all about the opioid crisis. And for those of you who can't see it, I'll, I'll be over to that side of the room in a minute. You see the map of the United States on the left, uh, on the top, and on the right. On the top and on the bottom. And basically what you're looking at uh, is the drug mortality uh, in 2005 on the top, where it's colored it in red, and the drug mortality on the bottom in 2014. So what we can see is that drug mortality related to, and it says it in small print, related to opioids and heroin over the 10-year period has gone from the top graphic of the United States to the bottom graphic of the United States. And if you look, it says death from opioids. Americans die 78 Americans die every day from an opioid overdose. Now, we will be discussing at the keynote tomorrow uh, what that data really means. Uh, are we really talking about prescription pain medications? Are we talking about prescription pain medications and heroin? Are we talking about heroin and fentanyl? Are we talking about heroin and illicit fentanyl, uh, prescribed fentanyl? Uh, personally, being an anesthesiologist, by trade, I consider fentanyl to be in almost all cases, except for cancer pain patients, an anesthesia drug. Uh, and when I read in the paper that Prince died of a fentanyl overdose, and the question is, was it prescribed for him? My brain immediately thinks there's no way it was prescribed for him. Because who would prescribe fentanyl for someone in Prince's age group who doesn't have cancer-related pain? In what scenario would that be? So there, there are a lot of questions with respect to this data, but it doesn't really matter at the end of the day because right now, in most people's minds, 
A heroin death, a heroin fentanyl death, is considered an opioid death, period. And these two circles uh, on the right side of the screen really just show that in rural areas, uh, the number of opioid-related deaths uh, in 2014 were greater, 25,234, to urban. And that may be changing. So again, so what? What does this really have to do with what we do? And what does this have to do with you when you leave this meeting? Or during the course of the next five days where you're attending this meeting? Well, what I decided to do is I decided to just focus on the states where I am licensed to show you some of the things that have happened from a regulatory perspective to me to give you an idea of what's going on and why you need to know what's going on in the states where you practice or see patients or consult for people who are seeing patients. So I'm licensed in Arizona, New York, not advancing, and Pennsylvania. That's where I am licensed uh, currently, not advancing. So I got this letter, <clears throat> and it says, on June 5th, Governor Ducey declared a state of emergency due to the opioid epidemic. In response to this statewide emergency, the governor has issued a declaration, state of emergency. By a show of hands, just out of curiosity, from wherever you are, how many of you feel that in your state there's a state of emergency with respect to the opioid epidemic? Okay. So this is what the governor of Arizona declared. He declared the statewide emergency and newly released data from the Arizona Department of Health show that in 2016, 790 Arizonans died from opioid overdoses, an average of more than two people a day, and showed an alarming increase of over 74% over the prior four years. And as I go through some of these things, what I want you to do is pick up on some of the key words. I'm not going to read every word on the slide for you. But what I want you to do when you see words like naloxone, when you see words like prescription drug monitoring programs, take note because there are recurring themes that we have been talking about at this meeting for the 11 years that I've been coming here. That, that for some reason, either don't seem to be easily integrated, they don't seem to be making a difference, or maybe they're pushing things in a balloon kind of effect, but look for those things. So the governor made certain recommendations to prevent prescription opioid through appropriate prescribing practices. Presumably that's through following guidelines in education. To develop guidelines to educate healthcare providers on responsible prescribing practices. To expand medication-assisted treatment for people who have substance abuse disorders. And to reverse overdoses through the distribution of naloxone. I am giving a talk on Thursday afternoon uh, on naloxone. I hope you will attend. It should be an interesting talk. 
One of the other things Arizona did uh, is they made the decision that similar to child abuse situations, they were going to make health care providers designated reporters. So now, if you look in the left column, health care professionals, administrators of a health care institution, a correctional facility, EMS personnel, law enforcement officers, medical examiners, pharmacists, basically all of the people you can think of that are involved with providing health care in some way, shape, or form, acutely or chronically, to patients have been, been mandated to become designated reporters for suspected cases of opioid overdoses, suspected cases of opioid deaths, administration of Narcan, instances of neonatal abstinence syndrome. And this is not a choice. This is a mandate. Now, in New York State, where I reside, back in 2013, the PMP, titled Internet System for Tracking Overprescribing, was mandated. So anybody who writes a prescription for a controlled substance in New York State needed to check the PDMP as of 2013. Electronic prescribing in New York State was mandated in March of 2016. So if you write a prescription now in New York State, unless you have a waiver, it has to be done entirely electronically. And this is all with the intention of tracking and preventing fraudulent prescriptions. And then this year, governor of New York State drew a line in the sand and said that by July 1st, 2017, by July 1st of this year, any prescriber in the state of New York had to complete a three-hour CME activity that involved education about pain management, appropriate prescribing, managing acute pain, palliative medicine, managing chronic pain, and they stuck on end-of-life care and responses to abuse and addiction. Every dentist, every nurse practitioner, every PA, every healthcare provider had to do this education and submit documentation about this. Now, if we go to Pennsylvania, the third state I'm licensed in, uh, Pennsylvania mandated the PDMP in January 1st of 2017. Pennsylvania uh, also now shares data across state lines with other states, with 11 other states. One of the limitations of PDMPs used to be the fact that states didn't share data with each other. So somebody could get a prescription in one state, go across the border, fill a prescription in another state. But slowly progress is being made. And Pennsylvania developed an entire portfolio of different guidelines for their health care providers with respect to opioid dispensing, pain treatment and OBGYN, geriatric pain, and on and on and on. Now, if you think about it, 
there are all these competing guidelines and recommendations that are swirling around. These are just three states that I'm licensed in. And just yesterday, I got an email from the Pennsylvania PDMP that my password is about to expire in six days, which I get from all the PDMPs I'm signed up for, and I have no choice but to sign up for them. So I have to juggle three PDMP registrations and on and on and on. Now, I, I included Maine, even though I am not licensed in Maine, I don't practice in Maine, but Maine is definitely a sentinel state in terms of problems with prescription opioid medications. And this is just a snapshot of what's happening in the state of Maine this year. Oop. January 1st, 2017, mandatory checking of PDMP. Limits on opioid prescribing for patients with both acute and chronic pain. July 1st, 2017, mandatory electronic prescribing. And patients with active prescriptions in excess of 100 morphine milligram equivalents must be tapered. This December, the CME requirement that I talked about in New York State that I had to complete by July 1st is going to be required to be completed by all prescribers in the state of Maine by December 31. So we're really starting to see a pattern here. So how does all of this track back up to the regulatory agencies that I described? Well, let's have a look. CMS came out with an opioid misuse strategy in 2016 with the intended mission of making things presumably safer, implementing more effective person-centered population-based strategies to reduce the risk of opioid use disorders, overdoses, inappropriate prescribing, and diversion. And we see item number two there, right? Expanding naloxone use. Expanding screening diagnosis of opioid use disorders and increasing the use of evidence-based practices for both acute and chronic pain management. Problem being that in some cases, we don't have a lot of evidence basis. But CMS is involved. AHRQ, supporting the Department of Health and Human Services initiative, wants to increase the base with research and data, investing about $12 million over the course of the next three years to explore how to best support rural primary care practices using medication-assisted therapy and overcoming educational barriers. Now, I, I talked about the Joint Commission before. This is a sentinel alert that went out to every Joint Commission-approved institution back in 2012, five years ago. They mandated that in order to maintain Joint Commission accreditation, policies and procedures for ongoing clinical monitoring of patients receiving opioid therapy needed to exist, that there needed to be policies and procedures that allow for a second-level review by either a pain management specialist or a pharmacist in the, in the institution, that opioid-related incidents needed to be tracked and analyzed, that information technology needed to monitor prescribing, and clinicians who pres prescribe pain medications needed to use both pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic treatments, 
and that there should be education and access, assessment of the medical staff on these matters and that patient education should be provided. Now, I, up until a few years ago, I considered the institutional setting to be a bit of a loophole because if a patient had surgery and they were discharged with a month's supply of a prescription pain medication, they sort of fell through the cracks. There was no prescription drug monitoring program checking. Uh, there really wasn't anything being monitored. And the Joint Commission has now tuned into that like a laser. And obviously assess the organization's need for training based on the analysis of reported AEs. NCQA proposed new measures to assess potentially inappropriate use of opioids. And they defined inappropriate use of opioids as long-term opioid prescribing at high doses, opioids from multiple prescribers or multiple pharmacies, or long-term high-dose opioids from multiple prescribers and pharmacies. Now, I talked about ONDCP before. And I talked about ONDCP supporting this President's Commission on Combating Drug Addiction and the Opioid Crisis. And the intention and the mission of this commission is to study the scope and effectiveness of the federal response to drug addiction and the opioid crisis. And then the availability of addiction treatment, which we're all waiting to see an improvement in. And then that word drug reversal which is another way of saying naloxone. And obviously, best practices for in education about prescribing and use of PDMPs. The EPA, maybe some of you in your states have started to see this, uh, are sponsoring guidelines for disposal and drug take-back take programs. This is a lot of stuff that all these organizations are doing with the intention of trying to solve the one problem. What the DEA did, and this is not something that I knew that the DEA did, is the DEA actually dictates to pharmaceutical companies the amount of medication that they can actually produce for a prescription in a given year. And on, July 5th, on October 4th, 2016, the DEA basically implemented a controlled reduction of opioid manufacturing in the year 2017 for almost every opioid by 25% or more. So that's one of the things that the Drug Enforcement Administration is doing. They're making less drug available to be prescribed. Now, the Federation of State Medical Boards, the one... The, the organization that I talked about that I think about with respect to punitive uh, regulations and so on and so forth uh, came out with an updated guideline for assessing physicians' management of pain in clinical practice. This was in 2013. There's already been an update to this guidelines that came out after the, the slide set was created. And it was to provide state medical boards with updated guidelines for assessing management of pain. And what I recommend is that all of you know what the state guidelines are in your individual state. Because as we saw with the three states I'm licensed in, 
They're not all the same. And it's important to know what the rules and regulations are with, with respect to where you practice. And the intention was to determine whether opioid analgesics are used in a manner that is both medically appropriate and in compliance with applicable state and federal regulations. So what did they list? They said, we consider inappropriate prescribing to include, but not be limited to, inadequate attention to initial assessment and risk determination. So when you go to whatever talk you go to during this meeting about guidelines or opioid prescribing or so on and so forth, latch on to something that will allow you to satisfy this requirement. Latch on to something that will allow you to provide for inadequate monitoring, uh, for adequate monitoring of potential aberrant drug-related behaviors. Latch on to something that you can do in your clinical practices or discussion with patients in terms of educating them and in terms of giving them true informed consent, which is where they understand the risks and the benefits of what you're considering as a treatment option, especially if opioids are being treated. And they also defined inappropriate treatment by unjustified dose escalation. And that means you increase the dose of a prescribed opioid without justifying the reason why. And then that last bullet, which is really not clear, excessive reliance on opioid analgesics, particularly at high doses. So again, there are some recurring themes that are taking place here. Words like high doses, words like reversal, words like naloxone. Now, the CDC guidelines hopefully are something that you are familiar with. They came out in March of 2016 last year. And basically what they said is some of the things that we've heard from other agencies already that you consider both non-pharmacologic and non-opioid therapy for patients with chronic pain. The question is, in everybody's minds, is are managed care organizations going to reimburse for it? Is it going to be paid for? Before starting opioid therapy for chronic pain, clinicians should establish treatment goals with all patients. Not unreasonable. Discuss known risk, benefits, responsibilities with patients. And I'm going to talk about, when we get to the FDA, what the word responsibilities means in 2017. Use immediate release opioids first. Uh, there are people who have started patients from square one, opioid-naive patients on extended release opioid analgesics. The CDC is clearly recommending uh, trial of immediate release first. And many states, again, this is really about states for you, many states are just latching on to these guidelines and incorporating them into their state recommendations using the lowest effective dose, dose ceilings with respect to uh, 90 morphine milligram equivalents per day, carefully justifying reasons to go higher than that in a primary care practice setting, and reassessing risk-benefit if you need to go uh, to 50 or higher. In acute pain, using the lowest effective dose and the lowest quantity. And New York State, I, I just couldn't add enough about what's happened in New York State, but the governor of New York State came out with a seven-day 
limit for a prescription of patients who are opioid naive for their first prescription. Reevaluating risk benefit in one to four weeks after the initial prescription and then at least every three months from then. And utilizing st strategies that mitigate risk, specifically an opioid risk assessment and naloxone. And I'll underline how many times I've said naloxone in the course of this discussion already. If opioid analgesics are considered for a patient, naloxone should at least pop into your mind as to whether or not it's necessary or not. And it should be documented with respect to whether or not the decisions made to prescribe naloxone. How that all works and logistically, we'll talk about in my naloxone talk, because it sounds easy, but I don't think it really is, because patients are not going to be administering the naloxone to themselves, right? Check the PDMP. That's what the CDC guidelines say. Do urine drug testing before initiation, before the initial prescription, and then at least annually after that and avoid concurrent opioid prescription uh, with benzodiazepine prescription. And uh, I have to tell you, I did, I did a talk for Pain Week last year, uh, and uh, one of the attendees called me earlier this year uh, because he had a patient that he was prescribing uh, concurrent opioids and benzodiazepines for. And I'm not familiar with the details per se, but there was a negative outcome. And he was really concerned because we did talk about the CDC guidelines. And the question is, uh, was there appropriate documentation in the medical record which had already been sequestered with respect to the rationale for why they were concurrently prescribed? Offer and arrange for evidence-based treatment for patients with opioid use disorder. Uh, I had dinner with a good friend and colleague of mine last week, and we talked about the delay of getting in to clinics where opioid use disorders are treated and how the backlog could be six to nine months before that patient could be seen. It sounds good in practice, but this is what regulators and regulatory agencies are looking at and saying, this is the metal that I'm going to hold clinicians up to. And the CDC even created a checklist, which I actually liked very much, for prescribing opioids for chronic pain. We anesthesiologists, we're like pilots. We use checklists all the time. And checklists have been very beneficial for us. This is available from the CDC's website. You could literally use it and put it in every patient's chart that you're considering for opioid therapy. It's a really good checklist, and it's a really good way to satisfy documentation. So now let's get to uh, what's now one of my home bases, uh, the Food and Drug Administration. The Food and Drug Administration, since 2011, when ONDCP came out with their report about what needed to be done, uh, they've been involved in creating risk evaluation mitiga mitigation strategies and education for clinicians who prescribe uh, opioid analgesics, and it's been voluntary. Uh, it's been happening, and as states have been mandating uh, this education, like New York State did and like Maine is going to, it sort of filled a, a nice uh, peg in the hole for satisfying the requirements. Well, this is a committee on pain management and regulatory strategies 
to address prescription opioid abuse that was put together by the FDA and recommendations uh, titled Balancing Societal and Individual Benefits and Risks of Prescription Opioid Use was published uh, in July 2017. And this was sent to the FDA and recommendations were made. I literally saw this on the day that I was writing this slide. And what they said in this report was, which was really intended to be an update to the Institute of Medicine report back in 2011, where everybody uh, quotes back to the magnitude of the problem of chronic pain in this country, 100 million people, five to $600 billion a year in terms of financial burden. Uh, they really wanted to update that report and look at the evolving role of opioid analgesics today uh, characterize the epidemiology of the opioid epidemic, and look at evidence on strategies for addressing it. And what they wanted to do was identify actions that the FDA should take, along with other agencies and organizations, like I mentioned, to specifically figure out how to incorporate individual and scientific considerations into the risk-benefit analysis. So what that means is this. I always used to consider the relationship with the patient to be between the patient and me. Anything I decided I was going to do for a patient, I decided I, I would do it. I would have the discussion about informed consent. I would talk about risks and benefits. The FDA now is going to look at societal risks and benefits and factor that into the equation. So that means that when opioid analgesics are being considered, or any medication for chronic pain for that matter, some justification of a risk-benefit analysis to people other than the patient need to be considered. And that means you can't avoid the discussion about other people in the household, other people who might have access to these medications when they're prescribed. And potential negative consequences with respect to inappropriate use of the medication. So that means that if an abuser was going to crush an abuse deterrent formulation of medication, melt it and somehow figure out how to inject it, if harm were to come to that abuser, that that needs to be factored in to the risk-benefit analysis. It's not just itching, constipation, respiratory depression, and so on and so forth. It's much, much bigger than that. And that is, to me, one of the most important take-home messages for you, is that the FDA is now looking at the risk-benefit analysis to just not be between the healthcare provider and the patient. It has to include the societal impact as well. This is the only data slide that I'm showing. This was included in the report that I'm just mentioning. And this blue line are overdose deaths from prescription opioids, excluding non-methadone synthetics, from 1999 on the left to 2015 on the right. So you can see what's happened to opioid-related deaths from prescription opioid medications. This red line 
that's heroin. And that's heroin with synthetic opioids and medications other than methadone. Now again, there's been a lot of discussion about the fact that if the number of opioids available to be prescribed goes down, if there are these morphine milligram equivalents, and so on and so forth, is there going to be a balloon effect? Are the number of deaths going to go down? They may not. So is the opioid crisis really about prescribed opioids? Is it about opioids? Is it about opioids and fentanyl? Is it about heroin and fentanyl? Is it about heroin and prescription pain medications? Based on what we're seeing here, they're neck and neck. I have no clue as to whether this is going to continue to go up if this plateaus. But the bottom line is, it's all being put on us anyway. We need to consider the societal risk. What, what the agencies, all these different organizations are looking to do is looking to us to say, we're not going to be responsible for contributing to this problem. And, and actually what I think is going to happen uh, is that the heroin and fentanyl death rate is going to continue to go up. Uh, if we're lucky, uh, the death rate from prescribed opioid medications will stay where it is or go down but I don't know. All I know is I'd like it to be taken off our shoulders. I would like us to be released from it, but not without us doing all of these things that I've been talking about this morning. And the recommendations were to invest in research, to consider policies and programs for opioid analgesics on illicit markets, uh, to improve reporting data and transparency, and to incorporate public health considerations into FDA decision-making processes. They actually recommended that the FDA retrospectively look at already approved medications to see if they pose greater than normal risk now that the risk-benefit analysis needs to include societal impact as well. To establish comprehensive ed educational materials, we've been hearing that forever. Uh, to facilitate reimbursement for a comprehensive approaches. Here's the word PDMP again. To evaluate, evaluate impact of both patient and public education. Oh, let me go back to that. And you see that bottom bullet there, right? Improve access to naloxone. Almost every agency that I've mentioned today is betting on the fact that naloxone is going to be a key component of combating the opioid crisis. And what that means is that when, again, just to stress, when opioids are considered as part of the treatment plan, naloxone pops into your head, and maybe it would be a good idea to make a notation uh, in the medical record about whether or not naloxone was considered and whether or not the patient was at increased risk for respiratory depression or justify why you don't think naloxone is important. So there are definitely a lot of cooks in the kitchen here. It's not advancing. Thank you. And in some cases, the agencies are in line with each other, but in some cases, they're yelling at each other. So the reality is, how does this affect clinical practice? Well, I think, as I said before, you need to think about 
your state-level requirements as a good starting point. What is it that your state is requiring of you as healthcare providers, and what is it they're saying should be done? So in the event that a medical record is retrieved for scrutiny, that it meets the muster. Consider what the DEA is doing and what their role is in this story. Be proactive with respect to that. Nelson Mandela said this. I agree with it. I think education is a key piece of this story. Uh, I teach in a medical school, uh, Stony Brook Medical School back in New York. And I teach an elective on pain in the medical school. We have 120 students each year. Only 15 of them are exposed to my course. Somewhere between 4 and 5% of medical schools, just, just medical schools alone, forget about other healthcare professional educational programs, only 4 to 5% of medical schools have a curriculum devoted to pain, despite the fact that it's the most common reason that people seek medical attention. We need to be vectors for education. You need to take back with you some of the things I've talked about so you know the answers to these questions and you know what your states are going to require of you. Dialogue, discussion, discussion with your peers, discussion with your patients, discussion with your patients' families, and documenting all of this. Any, any of this that I've talked about is really about documenting what your thought processes were, about what basically populated your decision-making process, and making sure that it makes sense. Remember, unjustified dose escalation is something that the Federation of State Medical Boards considered to be inappropriate prescribing. Now, things may be changing. Medic pain was designated the fifth vital sign back in October of the year 2000. See what that says? Measuring pain as the fifth vital sign does not improve quality of pain management. How many of you think that that statement is true? Opioid crisis, colon, scrap pain as the fifth vital sign. There's discussion that are calling on the Joint Commission and CMS to reevaluate whether pain should remain as the fifth vital sign. A lot of people feel it's responsible for the opioid epidemic. It's not advancing. Age caps are probably something we're all familiar with. Uh, there is discussion that HHS should remove pain from its survey in order to decrease the pressure on institutions for prescribing and treating pain. That it should be removed from the, the patient satisfaction surveys. So. Even these agencies, they're talking at each other and they're battling with each other about what the right and the wrong thing to do is. Not advancing. Well, we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, I hope this was meaningful and relevant. I will be here for questions because we're just about out of time. And uh, I hope we talked about something that you could take home and talk about with others in your clinical practice. Thank you very much. <laughs>